You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. When Tom LaRocca was in college, he was a self-described mediocre athlete. Running, biking, swimming, he enjoyed it all. I had a friend who got me into triathlons, and I became a very mediocre triathlete. Um, but I always thought it was fun. And at every race, you would um, always see you know, folks of all different ages. But without fail, there were usually like a couple in their 70s or 80s um, who were competing in these you know, pretty extreme endurance events. Sometimes these were half Ironmans occasionally. Um, so really long races. And I always remember thinking and sitting in the car, driving home with my brother talking about this and saying, how can we be like that when we grow up? That's, that's so cool. You know, I really want to be that, that healthy and that vibrant. At the time, Tom was a student of molecular biology at Williams College in Massachusetts. Several years later, he began his graduate studies in physiology at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he happened to fall into a graduate lab focused on aging. Which was something that I never thought that I would really be interested in because the word aging itself doesn't sound super glamorous. But as soon as I realized that really when people talk about aging, um, the thing that they're interested in, many people in the field are interested in anyways, is health span. And I started understanding what health span meant. It kind of clicked for me pretty quickly that that was actually, um, you know, what I had observed or been interested in when I saw these 80-year-old triathletes back in the day. Not only did Tom find an interest in health span in his studies, but it was a concept he became personally invested in after witnessing his parents' aging trajectories. My mother developed cancer in her um, in her late 50s and then her 60s, uh, struggled with it for quite a while. And my dad took on the role of caretaker in that situation, which is a, a really stressful role for anybody to have to take on. And when she passed away, he actually just kind of declined much more quickly than, than one would anticipate and died of a neurodegenerative disease. When he was racing in triathlons, Tom would see these older adults with increased health span. But in his personal life, his parents struggled with a reduced health span. Today on the show, we're unpacking this term. What is health span? Why do aging researchers care about it? And how are two people from similar walks of life able to age so differently? We brought in Dr. Tom LaRocca, the best person to have this conversation with because he's an assistant professor and director of the HealthSpan Biology Lab in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Colorado State University. His lab studies the molecular biology and physiology of aging. So we asked him, what does it mean to study the biology of HealthSpan? First of all, I just want to say thank you, Tom, for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I want to go ahead and dive into this overarching topic. What would you define health span as? What, what do the textbooks say health span is defined as? Yeah, you know, there is no great textbook on this topic as of yet. And I think there needs to be. And some people, I think, are working on that. Um, but the, the literature definition, the scientific literature definition of health span 
um, is that it's the period of your life or the portion of your life during which you are healthy, happy, and productive and all those things that, that we all want to be. In contrast to your lifespan, which is just literally the amount of time that you live. And so I think you can think about that in terms of um, in terms of concrete examples, right? So you might have two people who live to be 85, which is which is pretty good, right? But perhaps one of those people develops some sort of chronic disease in their 40s or 50s and has to live with it for 40 years up until the age of 45. So, so their lifespans are the same, but maybe the second person, um, you know, makes it up until the age of 84 and then develops something that they struggle with for a year and then pass away pretty quickly. So their lifespans are the same, uh, but the person with the earlier onset of the disease had a much shorter health span, a shorter period of time during which they were happy and healthy and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. And most of, would you, would it be fair to say that a lot of biology of aging research is really studying that increase of health span and how do you go about doing that? Yes, I think that's a, a major focus in the field right now, um, which makes sense, right? There's uh, the whole idea of anti-aging and living forever or something is sort of, you know, I guess there's some appeal to that for some people, but most people don't think that that's the primary focus that we really want to increase the healthy period for, for people as much as we mm -hmm. can. And so what does it mean to increase our health span? Like what, what kind of interventions are coming out of your research that could potentially extend those amount of healthy years we have? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, that's, a, I think, a really big question and you probably have to unpack it on, on different levels. Um, so if you, if you start with the first question, which is what does it mean to increase health span? Well, it's actually a pretty complicated question if you think about it. So how, how do we do that? And there's actually, um, there's, there's discussion and even argument about this in the field in terms of like, what does it actually mean? Probably the simplest way to think about it is to delay the onset of any and all diseases of aging. So, you know, it's important to think about, for example, um, reducing or preventing or even curing cancer, but cancer is just one disease that people tend to get as they age. And so what we really need to do in order to increase health span, in order to make sure that people live as long as they can, as healthy as they can, is to push back the age at which all chronic diseases set in. And so then the question becomes what kinds of interventions can actually do that? Uh, and that's, again, is a, is a hot topic in the field. It's really sort of the, the trillion dollar question, I guess. Um, and I should say that um, it probably is a trillion dollar question. So some people have actually done economic modeling of this idea, which I think is pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. So health economists and public health um, scientists have actually modeled what kind of cost savings we might benefit from as a society if we could prevent age-associated diseases as a group as opposed to just one or two of them. Um, and the answer is a lot of money. We would save a lot of money um, and on the, on the order of trillions of dollars. I can't remember the actual numbers from those studies, but it's pretty neat. Right. Uh, so again, the, the, yeah, so the, so the question is, right, which, which, what kinds of treatments or strategies work for doing that right now. And at least at the moment, I think most of them 
are things that might be not super surprising, but they're, um, I would say they mostly fall under the category of lifestyle interventions. And so that means things like exercise or healthy diet. And there's all sorts of varieties of these things that people are interested in. I think those are probably the two most significant things that we know can enhance health span, physical activity and exercise and a healthy diet. Uh, but there's certainly a lot of evidence for um, things like stress reduction and being socially engaged and other um, more social things like that. Yeah. Can you talk any to, you know, the topic that we hear often about metformin, this diabetes drug that might have some secret superpower about aging? Yeah, and, and many people are very interested in this. Uh, and so, so everything I just said is true, right? As far as we know right now, the best strategies for healthy aging and health span are exercise, healthy diet, things like that. But, but even if you do all of those things and you do them as well as you can, you'll still experience aging on some level. And for some people, um, they, maybe they can't exercise. They don't have access to facilities or they don't have the time in the day. I mean, I, you know, I, um, I exercise pretty much every day. I eat, I think, a reasonably healthy diet, but I have two very young kids and I don't even remember the last time I got a good night of sleep. Right. <laughs> and we know that we know that sleep is important for, for, for health and for healthy aging too, right? So, so there's a lot of interesting things, um, pharmaceuticals or pharmacological treatments that could sort of have similar effects to say exercise or, or healthy diet and metformin is one of the biggest ones. Um, I personally have not studied metformin, but the idea is that it could be in some ways an exercise mimetic and that it kind of mimics exercise at the cellular level. And the thinking is that it, um, one of the things that exercise does is it stimulates energy sensing pathways in the body because you burn a lot of calories, you burn a lot of energy, and the body senses that and responds with all of these protective biological responses. And metformin's thought to act similarly. It's an energy stimulus, kind of reduces cellular energy levels almost in a way um, like exercise does. And so there are, as you may know, there's some, uh, some folks who are interested in figuring out whether it metformin actually could be an anti-aging or health span promoting drug. And the concept is that it's, it's a, it's known to be fairly safe. It's been around for decades and decades as a diabetes treatment. Uh, and, and the safety profile and health profile behind it is very good. And most of the data on the people who have been taking it for long periods of time seems to suggest that they actually have some get some benefits of it beyond just what it's prescribed for. So they have a reduced risk for age-related diseases like Alzheimer's disease and other things. And so the thought is that maybe if we tested that in a more rigorous way and actually measured outcomes that are rel um, related to aging, then we might be able to figure out if it, if it actually prevents or reduces or slows down the aging process. So there's a big, and I'll stop after this, but there's a big multi-site multi trial uh, called the TAME trial, T-A-M-E, yeah. that's all focused on, on uh, figuring out whether metformin actually promotes health That's a pretty better. large government-funded study, isn't it? I think I remember seeing it from like the NIH or something. It is. Um, it's not funded by the NIH, I think. I think that it's funded largely by the American Federation that for one. Aging Research. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I just heard, um, one of the, one of the guys who's sort of the leaders of this whole effort, a guy named Nir Barzalai talked about this and he mentioned that I think they have 14 different sites where they're testing this. So yes, very large and several thousand people that they're planning to study. Um, and I'm sure it's costing them a lot of money. <laughs> and so, so with this, like with the TAME study and, and just metformin in general, I feel like it's kind of burgeoning on this difference between biological age and chronolog- chronological age. Like, is, is that kind of the concept behind it, that you take this drug and it somehow influences what your biological age is? Yes, um, although I'm not, I, I don't know enough about that study to tell you for sure how they're planning to measure that. And so what I mean is that you can, um, you can measure or get at the idea of biological age at different levels. And so the basic, the, the concept at its simplest is that there's, you have two ages, really. You've got your age in years, which is your chronological age, and then your biological age, which is sort of your cellular or biological health, right? And if you're 80 years old, but you've been taking fantastic care of yourself, your chronological age might be 80, but you might actually have the cellular and biological health of a 50-year-old person, so your biological age is 50. So my point is that you can assess that or measure it scientifically sort of at two levels. You can either look at the biological readouts of that by taking samples, blood samples or cell samples or biopsies um, and measuring things that we know are biological markers of aging. Or you can look at the functional aspect of that. And, And some people are very interested in this. And that means, you know, if you take a person who is in their 80s but has fantastic or or lower biological age than their chronological age would suggest, you might observe that they have uh, enhanced function, meaning things like brain function or artery function or other physiological body functions that we know typically decline with age. And so so, uh, those big interventions that are trying to get at whether something like metformin, for example, actually has some health span promoting effects are probably, I think they are looking at this at both levels. So you want to know, is it improving the cellular health, but is it it also improving the the whole body or organism level health? And that's really important to know that something actually is having a a beneficial effect. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking a lot about cellular responses here. So so to kind of diverge a little bit, you're in the lab, you're studying biology of health span what are you doing? What kind of techniques do you employ to study this topic? Mm-hmm. Yep. So we, um, health is a big topic. So you have to have sort of a framework for how you do things. Uh, we tend to focus, and I think lots of other folks in the field do as well on what are known as the hallmarks of aging. So these are biological events or mechanisms that other people have shown time and again are linked with the aging process at the biological level. Things like uh, DNA damage is one really simple example. Um, Cellular inflammation is another example or mitochondrial dysfunction with aging that increases. So, So we tend to look at those molecular causes of aging and 
be looking for ways that we can reverse them. And the idea is to try to reverse them and, and we hope when we reverse them also improve the function of whatever organism we're measuring those in. And so we do this using a sort of multi-tiered approach. Some people call this translational science where we'll study some events or some of these things in cells that we grow in a dish. Cells that you grow in a dish are, are fantastic because you can really look at molecular biological events like the things that I just described, but they don't really have a function to them. So um, I suppose some people could argue that they do, but in order to get at um, actual body function and health, we'll use, um, you need to use an organism. Uh, and we, one of the organisms that we use is a small semi-microscopic worm called C. elegans. Okay. Um, and these are neat little animals that you can grow thousands of them on a, on a small plate in the lab and then monitor their lifespan or their health span. And you can see how well they're doing uh, based on simple readouts, like how fast they're moving. Um, and you can even actually mem uh, measure memory in these little worms too. And then, but the ultimate goal, of course, is to bring it back to people also. Because the whole goal of all of this is to increase health span in people. And so... Um, we, what we do a lot of with people right now is um, what we call bioinformatics. And so this is a, <clears throat> a computational approach to looking at really large data sets, um, typically on, or commonly at least on things like genes or gene expression. Uh, and so we'll, we collaborate with a bunch of people who study human subjects or people directly, and we'll get blood samples or cell samples or biopsies. Uh, and we'll analyze patterns of gene expression to see if we can spot things that are sort of parallel to what we're observing in C. elegans or in cells that we grow in a dish. And then long-term, we, we just started our lab here at CSU, but hopefully in the next uh, maybe year or two, we'll be studying people in the lab as well. So I'm, I'm wondering, because I'm sure other people when listening to this, this is going to be one of their questions is, like, what does this mean long term? Because I feel like that's that's a question I feel like in science in general that often gets lost in translation is we have millions of dollars in grants that go to all these labs across the country. And what are you doing in your lab all day? And how is it going to affect me and my personal life at some point? So so why should we care about what you're studying and, and what is the long term effect of it? Yeah, I think people should always ask that question, right? Where are my tax dollars going? Um, and and it's, it, we should be asking that question as scientists yeah. too. And so, with the with the work that we do, um, I guess again, there's sort of multiple levels. So, we, in my lab, we're trying to understand um, what's happening upstream of those hallmarks of aging that I just described. So, so we know things like DNA damage happen as we age, but we don't exactly know why. And so if we could figure that out, then that might unlock a whole new set of investigations or lines of investigation that could uh, try to prevent DNA damage with aging. But, and that's the very scientific answer to your question, but the, the more practical ones are sort of uh, two, to the next two levels. One would be that um, as scientists and sort of the biomedical field in general, we need to be able to get a handle on everything that I'm describing in terms of health span and your risk for diseases. 
And so much of what people in my world are doing is trying to figure out if we can identify biomarkers, uh, things that sort of, that you could measure in a lab that would tell you something about either the hallmarks of aging or what's going on upstream of those hallmarks of aging and could help to tell you who's at risk, maybe whose biological age is older than you would expect and therefore really needs to be treated. Um, so we, we're certainly interested in the work that we do and, and trying to figure out if some of the things that we're studying have biomarker potential. Um, and again, to, you know, for, for the person on the street who might be interested in this, but what, what that means is that maybe 10 years from now, you'll, you'll go to the doctor and they would take a blood sample and they would measure X, Y, and Z. And maybe Z is something that we discovered in my lab. That's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> and then it'll tell them something, right? Uh, and, then the, and then the third level of that is that um, third goal there really is that if all of this that we're learning really explains something about the aging process and the upstream causes of it, then hopefully it's targetable. So best case scenario, you find a biomarker that could tell you something about people's risk. And that is also something that you could target with a treatment and in doing so reduce their risk. And then you've got a, a way forward for, for increasing health span. And it might be, you know, one of the big things that back to your question about who cares, right? It might be that this is something that, um, that nobody sees in practice for 10 or 20 years, but that's the way science works, I think. And what you're describing is personalized medicine to a T. Like this mm -hmm. is a tailored right. medical treatment based on the person that's coming into the doctor and what their genome is and what their health conditions are. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What do their hallmarks of aging look yeah, like? Which is different person by person. So mm -hmm. to be, I think a little bit more tangible, uh, to give a better idea of exactly what it is that you do. I think we should talk about some of the studies <laughs> that you've had come out recently. Sure. I know you had this one this past summer because I was the one who wrote about it. <laughs> yeah, That's right. <laughs> about repetitive elements. So these non-coding regions of our, our DNA and how they might have some kind of role in aging. Tell us about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we got interested in this a few years ago. Uh, it was sort of a spinoff of some work that I did as a, as a postdoc. Um, and... The, the short story is that I think most people are familiar with the, with the human genome, or at least they've heard about the Human Genome Project and the you know, this multi-billion dollar effort to sequence the human genome uh, in the late 90s into the early 2000s. Um, and most people know that the human genome, I, I think they know that the human genome is you know, all of the DNA that, within your cells that makes you who you are. What most people don't know, or at least there's not a lot of discussion about is the fact that only about 2% of the human genome actually codes for proteins that make us who we are and that compose all of our cells and, and tissues and things like that. So the, the great majority of the genome is officially non-coding and at, at least 50%, maybe more than 60% of it is actually repetitive sequences that people have sort of for decades and decades ignored as almost nonsense or, or the junk DNA in the genome. Um, yeah, and I, what I always tell people is, you know, if you, if you pause for even just a second and think about that, 
it's pretty clear that that makes no sense because nothing makes it through evolution as junk. And so there's a big push right now to try to figure out what are these repetitive DNA sequences doing at the cellular level? And maybe more importantly, or I guess it doesn't matter which is more important, but on top of that, what are they actually doing in the context of human health? And really nobody knows the answer to that second question. What do these repetitive DNA sequences do um, in human health or what's their role? And so we've been trying to figure out specifically what the RNA that's coming from those DNA sequences is doing as we age. And so I think most people, if they sort of rewind to bio 101 or remember that DNA has to get converted into RNA in order to, for the genes to get turned on and do their thing. And so, so in general, what we find is that um, RNA from these repetitive sequences seems to accumulate progressively as we age and we and other people have reason to think that those RNAs might be stimulating inflammation, which is sort of one of the hallmarks of aging that I mentioned a few mm -hmm. minutes ago. Yeah. And so, so what does that do? Like, what does inflammation look like at the end of life? You have all these accumulating RNAs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So inflammation um, is one of the most sort of well-known features of aging. Um, it's a little bit different from what most people think about when they hear the term inflammation. So inflammation itself is, is typically a good thing when you have an infection or you get an injury, your body stimulates inflammation in order to respond to it. And that's important. You need to do that for wounds to heal or to recover from a, um, a virus or something like that. Uh, but what people observe in aging is sort of a, a slow increase in chronic low-grade inflammation is what people say. In fact, some folks have even coined terms like inflammaging just to really drive home the point that it's a, it's a major mechanism of aging. Um, so we see that in pretty much all tissues throughout the body as people age. Um, you know, it's particularly important, what's well, important in most tissues, but it's definitely pronounced in um, the brain, for example. People talk about neuroinflammation. Uh, but again, nobody really knows the cause of that hallmark of aging. And so we, we and others are starting to think that maybe sort of a loss of control over these repetitive DNA sequences and the subsequent RNA that comes out of them might be driving inflammation. And the reason for that is that at least some of the repetitive DNA sequences that all of us have as we're you and I both, as we're sitting here talking right now, um, their their history from an evolutionary perspective, is that, that at least some of them anyway, are, are um, sort of retroviruses in nature. So they've, uh, they've parasitically jumped into our genomes. Um, and so if RNA from these virus-like DNAs is getting out into the cell, and what do cells do when they think there's some sort of virus problem while well, they turn on inflammation? And so um, that's, that's sort of our working hypothesis right now. And I should say that there's other people in the field who are thinking the same thing. Yeah. And I, I remember your student, Allie, had this really funny little experiment she did within the study, something about sun exposed cells versus unexposed cells. Right, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, we took a first look at this by doing some of the bioinformatics work that I described before. Um, and, and part of that involved mining other people's data sets that had been previously published. And we found this neat study where the authors had taken skin cells from young people and old people. And in those same people, they'd taken the cells from two places on the body. One is from the, the shoulder and the other is from the buttock. And, and the idea, the, the basic idea is that the shoulder cells would have seen more sun exposure Whereas the rear end cells, hopefully, would have seen less yeah, sun exposure over time. Hopefully, they're pretty covered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it depends, <laughs> I guess. But, um, but uh, you know, what UV exposure and sun sun exposure is known to be this kind of adverse thing, and um, you accumulate UV damage with aging. And so, uh, the thought was, I think the the folks that wrote the original or did the original study were thinking that they'd see you know, increased sort of aging in the, at the gene level in the shoulder cells versus the rear end cells. Um, and so we went and looked at their data and um, very surprisingly, we found definitely, we were looking at these repetitive RNAs that we're interested in. And um, first of all, in the older people versus the younger people, we did find more repetitive RNAs in the older people um, at both sites. But when you looked at the younger adults, in the study and looked at the shoulder samples that were sun exposed, we actually found more of these repetitive RNAs, which kind of suggests again, that they might actually be involved in the, in the aging process. There's no obvious reason that UV exposure would increase these things. So it just seems to sort of intrinsically link them to aging. Sounds like a great case for wearing sunscreen. Like, honestly, I, I wonder, For like, sure. if you redid that and looked at cells that had been covered with sunscreen, would you maybe not see as many RNAs? I would, I would suspect not. Yeah. yeah. Definitely wear your sunscreen, especially in Colorado. Oh, gosh, right? yeah. How high we are up close <laughs> to the sun. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And so another study you've had recently, you looked at the microbiome which I, I am just completely mm -hmm. fascinated by it. I'm not alone in that. There's researchers all over the world right now that are all talking about the microbiome. So, so tell us about this one. It had something to do with the gut microbiome and neuroinflammation. That's about the extent of what I know. <laughs> right, right, right. So we touched on neuroinflammation, or I did a few minutes ago, right? So neuroinflammation is this low-grade inflammation that happens in the brain as we age, and then we know that it becomes much more pronounced when brain aging transitions to dementia, like Alzheimer's disease. So it's a, a really important thing. But again, nobody really knows what the causes of neuroinflammation with aging or Alzheimer's disease are. Uh, so like you said, everybody's interested in the microbiome. And there have been a bunch of research uh, previous to this study showing that the microbiome changes as we age and it probably changes for the worse. Um, it seems to transition to what people call dysbiosis, so sort of an imbalance of healthy and unhealthy bacteria. And people talk often about the, the gut-brain axis is something that you hear about in the scientific literature. So it's known that changes in the gut can affect changes or, or can affect other parts of the body, for example, the brain, and, and there's definitely a connection there. Uh, but but we, we wanted to know in that study was, are the changes with aging in the microbiome, 
contributing somehow to the neuroinflammation that you see. And what we really focused on though was uh, this metabolite of the microbiome uh, it's called TMAO, trimethylamine N-oxide. So it's something that um, I think the simplest way to think about it is that bacteria in the gut produce it, bad bacteria in the gut produce it, and it can get into the circulation and cause problems. Other people had previously shown that it uh, causes inflammation in arteries. And so it seemed to make sense that that metabolite from these bad bacteria might be getting into circulation and also causing inflammation in the brain. And that's what we looked at in that study. And the, the, the short punchline is that that does seem to be the case. So again, another thing that could potentially be targetable, this TMAO. That's the idea. That's the, and it could also be a biomarker is the idea too. So in that study, we showed a couple of different things. That study involved data from uh, human subjects and mice and cells. And I should say that I'm, I'm actually the second author on that study. The first author is a friend down at CU Boulder uh, who did a lot of fantastic work in this area. Um, and what she finds is that uh, the levels of this TMAO bad metabolite correlate very closely with brain function in people. So if they have more of it than their brain function, we say cognitive function is actually lower. So in that sense, it's a biomarker. And then in the sense that you mentioned, hopefully it's something that we could perhaps target and reduce um, by targeting the microbiome or targeting TMAO itself directly. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the work you do always ends up going back to this potential personalized medicine component. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. I do think that's the future of medicine. It though. really that's, is you know, in all different kinds yeah. of disciplines. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I think aging itself lends or aging lends itself to personalized medicine really well because we all experience it differently. So, you know, some people are very interested in personalized or sometimes it's called precision medicine um, in cancer, for example. And that makes a lot of sense because different people have different mutations that can drive cancer. And so maybe you can personalize treatments aimed at those mutations. Um, but aging, I think, is, is similar and maybe even, you know, I wouldn't say a better example, but a, an, an excellent place to apply the concept because some people are at a greater risk for cancer. Some people are at greater risk for Alzheimer's disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't necessarily know what those risks are unless we can profile them and predict them somewhat accurately. Right. And which is why there's all this research going into how do you, you know, characterize all these different cellular molecular responses for Alzheimer's, dementia, you know, all these different diseases that play into the hallmarks of aging. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I know also a lot of the work you did prior to coming to CSU, which was last year, by the way, is when you arrived at CSU. 2019. Yeah, it feels right. like a lifetime ago. I get it. <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah, but a lot of your prior work was involved in arterial aging. So can you talk to us mm -hmm. a little bit just about lifestyle influences and, and arterial aging? cardiovascular work, work sure. that you've done? Right. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, cardiovascular aging, I think is a, an incredibly important topic to study because it really kind of connects to many of the other diseases of aging. So if you um, 
if you have arteries that don't function well, it's actually linked with an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, for example. Uh, so and it sort of makes sense because the circulatory system in your arteries connects everything throughout the body. So you need those to function pretty well. Uh, and then there's the obvious um, issues with cardiovascular health, like reducing your risk for heart attack or stroke as you age and cardiovascular disease uh, is still one of the, the number one causes of death in the US, even though COVID has yeah. come around. Right, yeah. Um, and so, so much of the work I did in that space was focused on strategies for keeping our arteries primarily healthy. Um, and the, the two things you really wanna do with your arteries to keep them healthy as you, healthy as you age is to keep them elastic as opposed to letting them get stiff and maintain their ability to dilate, which essentially means increase in diameter to allow more blood to flow when it needs to. This sounds like Both exercise of those... to me. Sounds like you just- Yeah, exercise. Do some <laughs> exercise and dilate your arteries and your veins. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so exercise is perhaps the best strategy for maintaining cardiovascular health as you age. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of interest in, in diets to various different kinds of diets. And so um, that's not something I spent a lot of time studying directly, but we would look at diet, certainly in most of our studies. And then um, beneath that, we were interested in uh, specific dietary components, whether certain foods, individual foods might actually improve your arterial health or whether certain ingredients in those foods or even specific molecules or compounds in the foods might work alone and people are interested in this idea of what they call nutraceuticals so nutritional compounds or however you want to think about it it's a combination of the word nutrition and pharmaceutical so biological compounds that are in foods that if you could it's basically a dietary supplement give to people would um, have some sort of drug-like effect so are we talking like specific mat macronutrients here, like supplement protein or that's something? A, no, that's even a separate question. Okay. Yeah, so macronutrient intake. No, that's a great point, right? So you've got you've got big picture, broad dietary patterns, um, and that means anything from you know the Mediterranean diet is sort of the best example of a heart healthy diet that we know of. Uh, but there's all sorts of different kinds of diets, right? Vegetarianism, um, the Western diet, which is what people think about as being the typical U.S. diet. And then beneath that, there's uh, macronutrients like you just described. So is a high-fat diet bad or is a low-fat diet good? Is restricting your protein intake a good thing? And a lot of people are interested in those questions. And then beneath that, there's our individual foods good for you if you sort of add more of them to your diet. And there are people on this campus who study this sort of thing. So like increasing your blueberry intake, Sarah Johnson um, in food science and human nutrition, she studies yeah. that or has studied it at least. And, um, and then I guess one level down is if we stick with that example, what's in the blueberries? Is it one molecule or is it two molecules? If you could extract those from the blueberries and give them to people in a more concentrated version or format would that have the same effects as the blueberries or better effects than the blueberries but i guess you know this idea of sort of medicinal 
plants has been around for a long time, yes. right? Yeah. Yes, the prehistoric times, for sure. And I think that's that's part of the sort of history of the nutraceutical world too, is that there, at least in some cases, there are these examples of foods that people have eaten for, you know, decades or millennia um, that seem to be linked with better health. And so then the obvious question as a scientist is, well, what's in that food that might be exerting those effects? And and you sort of just narrow it down somehow. So we've talked about a lot of different things that you've had your hands in with repetitive elements, the microbiome, now some some cardiovascular such research. What would Mm -hmm. be your takeaway from all of it? If you had to give your best advice for healthy aging from all that you've researched and what you know as a biology of health span researcher. Yeah, um, no, it's a great question. And I, you know, I'll always default back to what we do know. And that's the, the best thing that you can tell people um, is that we know that physical activity and a good diet are healthy. Um, and to, to the best of your abilities, I think you should do those things. You should try to be physically active should eat a good diet, whatever kind of diet it is. I don't, I think there's a lot of discussion about what the best diet is, but as long as it's not a bad diet, you're, you're in good shape. You've got your whole foods um, in there. You should, you're, you're playing pretty balanced. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Correct. Um, and then uh, trying to be socially engaged with family, friends, and have a positive disposition and probably get enough sleep. These are things that make a lot of sense intuitively. And I think people should, should try to do those things. I try to do those things as much as I can. Um, my, I guess my takeaway on the my personal takeaway is that um, it seems to me, I'm not sure how well I can articulate this, but what sort of seems to be crystallizing from a lot of the work that people are doing in this space to me is that if you want to maximize your lifespan or health span, you almost need to think about it as sort of a journey from point A to point B. And you can insert whatever analogy or metaphor you want in here. So let's say you're in a car and you're going to make that journey from point A to point B, or it could be a sailboat, whatever, whatever you want here, or drawing a line between those two points with a pen that has a limited amount of ink in it. And the car has a limited amount of gas in it. And the, sailboat well i guess the wind is a bad example right but um you know that if if you only have so much gas in your car and you can only make it a certain distance what you really want to do is drive that car conservatively to try to maximize your gas mileage sort of drive it in a straight line don't take major detours and if we're speaking in metaphors major detours might be you know majorly stressful periods of life or long stretches of time where you're eating a terrible diet or something like that, you know, you should put good gasoline in the car. So that would be a healthy diet and that sort of thing. And maybe it's a cheesy analogy, but I I think actually the idea of sort of imagining that you have to sort of conserve your resources and get as far as you can without picking up a lot of damage or injury or running into a lot of trouble along the way for me is is the best way to understand the way things seem to be pointing in the health span space. Yeah. So, so good diet, 
good amount of exercise. I think the recommendation is like 150 minutes per week. 150 minutes per yeah. week, right? Get some good right. sleep. And that's mod that's moderate exercise right. too, right? I always emphasize that to people. It's you know, walking is great. You don't have to be running triathlons. Yeah. Um, I think the movement piece is important. Just get your body moving exactly. and do something that you actually enjoy doing. Don't hop on a treadmill mm -hmm. if you absolutely hate running. <laughs> no, 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 definitely yeah, not. Yeah. And then get some good sleep and, and have a good social support group. Those are your tips. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I would say. Well, that's about all the time we have, actually. Thank you so much for doing this. This was a great conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.